Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, and with me is my co-host and editor of News Data's California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. We're here with some of the top stories we've been working on lately. But first, uh, Jason, how are you doing? I'm great, Dan. How are you? How was your weekend? Uh, it was good. It was good. I uh, went to a Mariners game yesterday. They beat the Rockies one nothing. Wow! Uh, it was nice. Yeah, the, it was the second game I've been to so far this season. It's really nice to have a decent baseball team back in Seattle after <laughs> decades of not that. Um, <laughs> but it was like two and a half hours long. It was fantastic. Uh, wow. I love baseball. Grew up in a baseball family. I you know. The happiest days were like days at the ballpark or out in a ball field playing. Um, mm-hmm. Baseball was getting boring. Four hour really? game with like six pitchers. Uh, that's boring when it's like yeah. you're just going to see a home run, a walk, or a strikeout. So, oh, yeah, you know, new rules. New yeah. The uh, uh, pitch clock and some other rules with like pitch changer or changing pitchers and some other things they're doing to try to speed things up uh, that at least yesterday it certainly moved. The game was moving along now. I mean, it was also a pitching duel. Uh, so yeah, right. those games move along a little faster anyways, hmm. but regardless, this, it was, it was a great game. The Mariners won one, nothing. When I think yeah. about baseball, I think about like a long day at the park, but, is two and a half hours almost too short, or you find that to be pretty adequate? I think it's great. Okay. I mean, that's what if you go back and look at historic lengths of games, like in the '60s, games were about two and a half hours long. Oh, all right. They started edging up since then. Um, yeah, but like that seems to be about like the historic normal length. Uh, they might have been a little bit shorter before that. Um, yeah, especially before the advent mm-hmm. of lights and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, no. I, I I think two and a half hours, three hours. Sure. Great. Yeah, especially uh, when yeah. beers are $14 a piece or whatever. Oh my God. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I've been hearing that climate change, I have no idea whether this is accurate, is causing a lot more home runs in baseball. Did you hear this? I have not heard this. This sounds yeah. like the setup to a joke. I know. So um, I hear climate change has been causing a lot more home <laughs> runs in baseball. Really? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, some study, something. I just saw some headlines on it and some stuff on Twitter. Sammy Roth over at LA Times, a big baseball fan, he was discussing it. But I guess you know, the warmer, more humid air. But I don't know. Just one more climate change impact. Interesting. Yeah, well, there definitely are like some seasonal changes at the beginning of the season and at like the end of the season when the air is colder and drier. Mm. Um, I, it's been so long since I read about it. I couldn't reliably tell you anything about it, but I know yeah. the balls, baseballs do move differently in some cities depends on like where, yeah, I don't think it matters that much in maybe in Houston. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but they're stealing signs anyway, so weather doesn't affect that. Oh, boom. Right. Take that, Houston. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so anyways, yeah, no, the, like there, there's uh, a different how far about ball travels in like Chicago is moderately, marginally different in April than it is in July on average. Mm. Something so. I never considered. 
Good baseball. Yeah, so, I don't know. I'll have to go look up the climate change thing. But you know what? Uh, unless we're going to turn this into a sports talk podcast, we should probably talk about energy. Sure thing. I'd love to continue talking about baseball. Yeah. Well, uh, I can go over what I have for this week. Yeah. What do you what do you got for us? From California energy markets. First of all, a very interesting story from our freelancer Yolanda Bloxham about the new proposals in California to move to a flat electricity rate that is quite astounding. Obviously, a major re- rework of how things are done. I'll be discussing that. And then I'll be discussing my story about the new lawsuit seeking to uh, preserve the agreement to take off the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Some more intrigue in the ever-changing story of Diablo Canyon. Then I've got a new nuclear states collaborative from some state regulators and state energy officials. Story from Abigail Sawyer talking about that. What what do you have going on? Well, so I've got uh, the Bureau of Land Management. The federal government is Mm -hmm. greenlighting uh, the construction of TransWest Express transmission line between Wyoming and Southern Nevada uh, near Las Vegas. So that's getting a go ahead. Um, And then also I've got a story on the kind of the state of the utility industry in the Northwest conservation and industrial changes are have been keeping regional demand overall flat but the future looks increasingly less like the present i see lots of change afoot indeed well so why don't you get us started off speaking of change have it look yeah. what's going on with that uh the rate change proposal it's a pretty big uh shift that's being proposed i don't even know if you'd call it a shift it seems yeah, it would be a you know obviously a fundal, fundamental reworking of the way things are done. These are the IOUs, the states IOUs filed these proposals with the California Public Utilities Commission. This is a new proceeding just at the very beginning. It is flowing from legislation. So um, what they're doing is they're moving to flat rate pricing for this is all residential, by the way with three to five customer tiers based on personal income. So you would pay a flat rate based on your salary. And obviously the lower income would pay lower. And then then there is a fixed or a not a fixed, a per kilowatt hour usage too. Um, but the idea behind this is to take some of the strain off electrification, electric vehicles and appliances um, so the three, the largest IOUs, Pacific Gas and Electric, Southern California Edison, and San Diego Gas and Electric, all filed slightly different plans. And then the other IOUs also did, including Pacific Core. Let's see, SDG&E CEO Carolyn Wynn in a news release said that, quote, fundamental change is needed to provide bill relief, unquote, adding that the utility is also pushing for federal funds to upgrade electric infrastructure. SDG&E proposes to reduce the per kilowatt hour cost of electricity by 42% and then create four flat rate tiers. Um, And then, you know, there's a lot of complications here. For instance, about 85% of customers in SDG&E territory are enrolled with community choice aggregators. So they'd also be receiving those bills. 
What do we have from PG&E Executive Vice President Marlene Santos? Quote, as California rapidly advances to a future of electrification, this proposal will help to limit the impact on disadvantaged communities. As California's transition to electrification in support of the state's clean energy goals, this is Assembly, Assembly Bill 205, passed in June 22, was really uh, what set this process in motion. Of course, electric rates are now based by volume all electric houses in that case in the current regime pay a little bit more or disproportionately more for fixed electric system costs legislators hope that lowering volumetric electric rates will make building electrification more cost cost effective for customers so ab25 authorized the cpc to create income graduated fixed charge for all ious large and small by july 1st 2024 now we'll be in the comment taking phase of this reply testimony is due April 28th, pretty quick timeline. And then, you know, we'll need to figure out this whole new structure as well as prices. I'm sure this will draw a lot of comment and probably some discussion about, you know, California policies. And um, so, yeah, very interesting. It's, I was not aware of this legislation. Um, so. We'll see what happens with this. It's going to be a, a long proceeding, I think. Oh yeah, this yeah. is not the kind of thing that you just uh, flip on a yeah. flip on a whim overnight. So yep. uh, it's flat rates, but there still is an energy charge. That's my understanding. I'm still figuring this out, but yeah, um, but they're going to reduce those energy charges. I think the the flat rate because um, you guys already have a isn't uh, do you guys not have a is it purely volumetric rates there in California currently? Or is there yeah. like a fixed charge and then a volumetric rate on top of that? I think it's I think it's all volumetric. I don't happen to pay a power bill because I'm off grid. But yeah, it's a you know retail rate, volumetric retail rate. I think it's it's one price for everybody. Um there's lots of programs, you know, in place, low income programs like the care program. So there are there's already some subsidization, but uh, yeah, this this would be a pretty radical reworking of things. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I know yeah. you know rate design. It's something that is increasingly, deservedly so, getting a lot of uh, kind of uh, people taking a deeper look at it, and not just how do we tweak it, but how do we restructure it as the mm -hmm. grid and just how the business model of the electric power industry changes and certainly know up here there's a big push uh well i shouldn't say that that there's a an increasing number of voices saying you know hey we should really be going to um a bigger fixed charge smaller variable volumetric rates mm -hmm. because the infrastructure costs are just so great that uh it the volumetric rate structure just doesn't really work well with what uh, companies need to invest. And then also uh, it encourages, it makes it easier for, uh, you know, if people are leaving the grid, right. uh, then that just saddles the remaining people with, uh, to bear that, to spread around that infrastructure cost. And so very quickly you get in questions, very significant questions about energy equity. And it's oh, just yeah. a fascinating topic that mm -hmm. still kind of feels like it's still on the sidelines, but, 
you know, you can right. look at who's having these conversations at, you know, conferences or what have you. And um, it's sure. going to be front and center, I think, in the next few years. Uh, but so yeah, it'll be interesting to follow. Yeah, a lot of discussion about, you know, the hurdles to electrification because of high costs. Will people buy EVs when their electric bills are already high? But maybe a solution here. Yeah, indeed. We'll be covering this well, going forward. Yeah, well, looking forward to it. Yeah, well, you have some uh, transmission news for us. Yeah, and this actually was covered by Linda Daly-Paulson, who is, uh, so we picked this up from you guys. Uh, yep. But so the U.S. Bureau of Land Management uh, earlier this month said construction could start on the 3,000 megawatt capacity TransWest Express transmission project that runs between Carbon County, Wyoming and Clark County, Nevada. So that's like the very southern tip of Nevada where Las Vegas is and right yeah. in between uh, Arizona and California. This is a 732 mile long uh, 500 kV high voltage DC line. Uh, and a 500 kV high voltage AC system running between Utah and Southern Nevada. Sorry, the DC line runs between Wyoming and Utah, and then it's AC from Utah to Nevada. So uh, originally they'd hoped to start construction in 2022 and have it online in 2025. Those have been pushed back. Uh, they hope that they'll start uh, finish the first phase of construction 2027. And like every transmission project nowadays, it feels like uh, this has been decades in the making. So hopefully there will not be any more um, you know, bumps to the progress of this. Uh, yeah. The developers feel pretty confident about it. So, But it'll be another really important addition to the West's uh, transmission project or transmission grid. For sure. It says uh, BLM authorization process began in 2008. Yeah. Man. But uh, Carbon County, Wyoming, I don't think it was named after wind generation. (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely not. Whole country. Yeah. Well, maybe one day they'll change the name to Decarbon County. Oh, like that. The locals love that. (laughs) They will love that. Well, speaking of carbon and decarbonization, anyways, yeah. uh, so what's the latest with Diablo Canyon? The ongoing saga of Diablo Canyon. Yeah. What happened? There was a settlement agreement back in 2016 that a lot of people are aware of. That was a pretty big deal. Only one party to that agreement, Friends of the Earth, is now suing in court for breach of contract for saying PG&E violated the terms of the settlement. There was notably some groups that did not participate in this, including Natural Resources Defense Council. They didn't really want to get involved. Um, Yeah, Friends of the Earth, with the acronym of FOE, agreed to drop a separate lawsuit back in 2016 over environmental and safety concerns. I did note there's been some challenge of the friend of the earth data that they used. I can maybe talk about that in a second. Of course, the decision to retire Diablo Canyon was swiftly reversed last year. It was supposed to retire. These units supposed to retire 2024 and 2025. 
So Hallie Templeton, who's legal director for Friends of the Earth, said this, quote, contracts simply don't vanish into thin air. Yet ever since California passed legislation supporting Diablo Canyon's extension, PG&E has been acting as if our contract has disappeared. Setting aside the agreement to retire Diablo, there are myriad legal prerequisites for extending operations of a nuclear power plant, including federal decisions that states cannot dictate. She's right about that. The NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, is of course considering PG&E's relicensing PG&E wanted to use an older relicensing process, but NRC said, no, you're going to have to start with a whole new application. However, NRC did say that they can keep their plant running while the license application is in process. So quite uh, another development. You know, there's, I think this lawsuit who knows this this will all hinge on the interpretation of contract law by the court but there's a lot of momentum to keep diablo canyon open including the california legislature which passed the legislation and governor gavin newsom wants it open and the department of energy also awarded 1.1 billion to pg e in november 2022 to keep the plant operating i will note that the california energy commission recently did a study saying that the that running the plant beyond its scheduled decommissioning date is necessary to meet the state's growing electrification needs. So hard to say where this, which way this one will go. Well, any idea of how long this is could take to play out? No. Um, I mean, I know with, with <clears throat> lawsuits, like that's, you know, take any estimate with a right. major or many grains of salt. But I, I've, just don't know if this is uh, any sense of, as to whether this is something that could drag on for you know, even years or what have you. It's hard to say. Um, I don't really. I did talk to Ari Pesco, director of Electricity Law Initiative at Harvard Law School. He assumes PG&E will ask the court to dismiss the complaint. I didn't ask him how long this might take. I think that's pretty much unknown. Yeah, he said their response will likely be about contract law generally and and perhaps specifically the provision of California civil code that is cited in the complaint. Hmm. And then we have the Breakthrough Institute, which says the 2016 settlement was based on a, quote, preposterous claim, unquote, by foe that replacing Diablo Canyon would be cheaper for electricity ratepayers than continuing to run the plant. That Breakthrough Institute, which is was founded by uh, Michael Schellenberger. If you're involved in California energy, you know who he is. He's a nuclear activist. Um, so the Breakthrough Institute published a blog in August 22, disputing Foe's claims. I tried to, I asked Foe about this. They didn't respond. PG&E did not respond either about this lawsuit. I'm shocked. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, Diablo Canyon, as always, up in the air with this, you know, it's kind of an interesting situation. The way this state has played this is kind of typical of California. Let's shut it down. Now let's keep it open. Oops, now this is getting more complicated. <laughs> and, you know, there's since the plant opened, there's been more seismic uh, faults that have been identified, and people are saying this plant is dangerous. PGE and others say, though, the plant is safe. I guess time will tell, but hopefully we get it right. 
And the devil is in the details. I can't resist. As always. Yeah. Well, I've got some details about the electri- electricity, electricity, ut- electric utility industry. Okay. There you go. In the Northwest. So we've okay. got a, the economy in the Northwest has been growing steadily uh, in recent years. Uh, did 3.5% uh, in the last decade, 2011 through 2021. But despite the steadily steady growth of the uh, ec- economy, electricity sales basically remained flat, according to the Northwest Power and Conservation Council. Their staff credits uh, efficiency and structural changes in industry, basically industry, the economy, moving away from energy-intensive industries mm-hmm. <laughs> that produce you know, lower, earn fewer dollars uh, in mm-hmm. moving towards less energy intensive, higher dollar value uh, economic activity. So such as moving away from paper production to software services. I see. So uh, yeah, in we also got a steady rise in the summer peak. Uh, summer peak demand is growing rapidly the two highest summer peak loads in the northwest came last year and the year before and if you look at the let's see the five highest summer peak loads that we've had all came in the last six years right and i mean it's pretty easy to see he so the analysis which was done by um the Power and Conservation Council's um, Masood Jarabshi, one of their energy economists, he pulled out some uh, weather data from four cities around the area, uh, Seattle, Portland, Spokane, and Boise, that really illustrates this trend uh, that the degree or the the number of cooling degree days, so basically hot days when you want to turn the air conditioning on, uh, grew at an average annual rate of 3.7% 3.7% in Seattle. Uh, they all grew above 3%. So Portland was the lowest at 3.3%. Uh, Spokane had the highest at 5.5%. So during that same period, uh, the number of cold days that when you need to turn the heat on basically was flat and slightly declining. Uh, so the weather really is shifting, contributing to that higher summer peak. So this trend of higher and higher summer peak demand uh, yeah, that is we have every reason to think to think that is going to continue, which is showing up in the IRPs, the resource plans being filed by utilities now, um, and how they're saying, you know, we're really having to plan not just for having energy during the peak and during the seasons, but because of these seasonal changes, um, we're really having to change approaches to resource planning to make sure that we've got enough capacity throughout the year and also enough clean energy for those peak hours. Um, So, Mm -hmm. uh, which we've been covering some of the latest resource plans and clearing up. So you can go check out those stories in recent weeks to see how that ties in. But yeah, you know, so I was talking to Masood about his uh, analysis here. And it's kind of like climate data, though, uh, that all these trends are well and good, uh, but the future 
looks less and less like today. So, sure. you know, whereas uh, you look at the the uh, regional electric load today, it's pretty close to what it was 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. 10, 15 years from now, it'll be, you know, what, 20, 30, maybe more percent higher. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. The, you know, peak demand also has been dropping in California. I think the record was 2005 until it was recently broken. But yeah, energy efficiency and I guess you could call it a success story, you know, uh, more efficient use of the system. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Hopefully. Things continue to warm here in the West. Indeed. Well, so what do you have for us for your last story? All right. Well, here's some coverage from Abigail Sawyer. This is a group of 31 entities from 23 states. Considering or actively working towards development of advanced nuclear reactors, they're going to meet in the state of Washington in late April for a workshop to launch what is being called the Advanced Nuclear State Collaborative. This is initiated by NARUC, National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, and also the National Association of State Energy Officials, which is supported by the U.S. Department of Energy. This was founded to address emerging regulatory policy questions that surround the deployment of new nuclear energy in the U.S. Utility regulators and energy officials from throughout the nation will receive direct support from nuclear experts while participating in real-time peer learning. Um, Yeah, a lot, as I said, 31 entities here. And I think they're going to be looking at, you know, small modular um as being developed by TerraPower in new scale using that as a means of supplying emissions free baseload power to complement renewable energy resources and then we've got of course the uh Utah UAMPS Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems still working on that 462 megawatt carbon free power project that's uh SMR technology developed by new scale even though the cost of that project has gotten higher and higher, but they're still sticking with it. And then we have Pacific Core in its 2023 IRP said it hopes to add 1.5 gigawatts of nuclear power to its portfolio by 2032. That's including 500 megawatts at TerraPower's Natrium demonstration plant in Kemmerer, Wyoming in 2030. So yeah. This is uh, the brave new world of nuclear. Obviously, the smaller modular is a lot easier to site, less expensive to build. And um, yeah, we'll we'll see on this one. Definitely some momentum towards it. And when you've got major support from the federal government, I think helps. Indeed. So, yeah, we'll have some nuclear coming in here with the UAMPS project which uh, is kind of exciting. That'll be participating in the energy and balance market. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly momentum growing. I mean, despite those rising price uh, estimates or some small modular reactor projects, um, yeah, UAMPs. (laughs) Uh, UAMPs. But yeah, I mean, nonetheless, uh, I mean, 
going back to the Diablo Canyon story. Yep. Uh, a lot of growing consensus that nuclear, more nuclear is part of the future. And, you know, my, my eight-year-old son has been talking a lot. He's really into the idea of fusion uh, reactors and is doing his darndest to figure it out. So oh, uh, maybe I should send him over to this meeting. Uh, I think it's in Richland, Washington. <laughs> so he can... Reserve, yeah, my, representing the youth contingent. Yeah. I'm good. Is he, uh, tell him about how you think you've got fusion figured out. That would be amazing. Is he, um, how does he feel about nuclear power? Has he heard any of the negatives about, you know? Not really. Okay. Uh, no, he's, I mean, he realizes, you know, about meltdowns and. Yeah. I, mean, I, I guess actually he does know about it. We've talked about Chernobyl, Dreamha uh, mm-hmm. Island and radiation and what do you do with the radioactive waste etc but uh he seems to be like a hard advocate for uh, for nuclear maybe a sign of how the youth will look at it you know three mile island we all remember that and china syndrome came out the movie and really and then after fukushima really put the kibosh on, on nuclear in the states at least yeah Yep. Although we do have the Vogel plant in Georgia, which has recently started making power, I believe. I think so. Yeah. There's only a couple gazillion dollars over budget. Yeah. Um, just a smidge. <laughs> well, I'm sure it will. It's hard to imagine decarbonization without more nuclear online. So. Yeah, it's it's such a passionate topic, um, in the energy world, but it does you know. Wind and solar are great. Nuclear is obviously not weather dependent and um, emission free. I mean, it would be great if we could just figure out fusion. That would solve yeah. a lot of the problems. Yep. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah. Fusion plants, a lot less chance of meltdown or no chance of meltdown or something. Yeah, I think it's no chance from what I understand. But then again, I am not a nuclear physicist. No. So. Oh, cool. but from what I've read, it's yeah, basically zero chance. The radioactive waste has less, it's less radioactive, and it's it produces less of it. It's less potent and has a shorter half life, but right, it still produces radioactive waste. So yeah, just well, not fusion, a big problem. Fusion's moving forward. We covered that a few months back when they I guess had the first energy producing reaction. Yeah. But long way, long way to go on fusion. Unless my eight-year-old has a breakthrough. You never know. So check back at newsdata.com. See if my eight-year-old put the pieces <laughs> together. But, uh, it, you know, for now, uh, that's all for me, Dan Catchpole. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Energy West is edited and produced by our colleagues at Pioneer Utility Resources and Lucky Sound Studio. You can find me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at dcatchpole, and clearing up is on Twitter at cu newsdata. That's the letters C U newsdata. California Energy Markets is also on Twitter. Check us out at cem newsdata. I'm also on Twitter at Fordney Energy. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>